This is probably the most significant conversion in the history of the church. I mean, think about it. This, this man that God will graciously save will be the door that will open the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, this is the man through which God will use to bring the gospel to everybody that is outside Israel. Now, we know that, that Jesus can use anyone, any chosen instrument. Matter of fact, he used uh, Philip to proclaim kind of essentially uh, to those outside of the immediate Jewish circles. But think about this. God chose Saul, soon to be known as Paul, to proclaim the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. Anybody that wasn't a part of the, the Jewish nation. That's significant to you, right? You, you kind of owe a lot of thanks to the Apostle Paul. His conversion is significant. But also, it is powerful and significant because I think in the conversion of Saul, we see an example of how God works in every single conversion, how, how God works to save every single sinner. You see in the conversion of Saul kind of a picture of how God has worked in your life. And if you're a believer, this is very encouraging to you. You love to see how God has saved you. You love to see how God has changed you, how God has worked his truth into your heart and in your mind. So these are encouraging things. I, I want to just kind of kind of walk through the conversion of Saul, and, and, and point out a few examples that it provides for us. How, how, how Paul, Paul, Saul's conversion is good for us to hear. There's some basic parallels, but also it is, it is good for us as believers to think about this. So here's some, here is how Paul's conversion story is an example of our own. See if you can see your own conversion, your own testimony in the conversion of Saul. Number one, it's an example of God's grace. It's an example of God's grace. If you read the letters of the New Testament, you have to read Paul's letters because he dominates the scene in the New Testament, right? He writes tons of letters and you continually get this sense that he just cannot get over the fact that Christ Jesus has been gracious to him. He can't get over the fact that God has chosen to save him. Paul would call himself, in 1 Timothy 1.16, the foremost of sinners, the worst sinner, the greatest sinner. He saw his sin as great before God, and he saw himself as, as one of the chief sinners. He saw himself as the persecutor of the church. He says in Galatians 1 that he even tried to destroy it. How much of a greater sinner can you almost be? He, he described his zeal, his zeal in the, in the Jewish system as, as a persecutor of the church. He, he could never forget about his, his great sin and God's grace. But the, the reason he's constantly bringing it up is because he doesn't want you to forget it either. He sees himself as an example of God's grace. And this is the same grace that we also see as well. Uh, what is the picture that Luke paints for us of Saul's sinfulness, Saul's need for God's grace? Well, you see there in the first two verses of Acts, Saul is painted and pictured like a wild beast, right? He is breathing threats 
and murder against the disciples. Now, if you go all the way back to 8, 8, 1, all the way down through 3, you see Saul there was ravaging the church, right? Another picture of him like a vicious animal. Matter of fact, ravaging, that word there is, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Psalm 80, it's used to speak of this wild boar just trampling and stomping its way through a vineyard. That's who Saul was. In his own testimony, in his own account of his conversion, he described himself as having this consuming, raging fury. That was Paul in Acts 26, 11. He was consumed continually by this desire to destroy the name of Christ, to wipe it out, to bring it to an end. And here we see he is breathing threats. Uh, one commentator says, this is like the panting and the snorting of a wild beast. And, and you see there, this is like a continual, continual breathing. Saul still continually breathing threats and murder. It's almost as if in between 8-1 and 9-1, this is all Saul can do. His life is consumed by this desire to destroy and wipe out the church. It's all he can think about. It is the air he breathes. He wants to see the name of Christ snuffed out. He oppresses it continually. He is all-consuming. His, his entire personality is dominated by this desire. He has, he, has, he has kind of maneuvered all of his discipline, all of his strength, all of his boldness, all of his, his, his brilliance in speaking to destroying the name of Christ. He is an incredibly passionate man, and he is committed, and he is determined to bring Christ's name to an end. And then we see here in verse 3 also, he is nearing Damascus. And, 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 and just to give you a little background, this conversion of Saul is obviously a very significant one, as I said already. It kind of has ramifications to your testimony as well. And it also kind of opens the door to the Gentiles. But we also know it's significant because Luke repeats it three times in the book of Acts. Uh, Luke repeats it in Acts 22, and Luke repeats it in Acts 26. Again, it is given three glimpses in the book of Acts because it's so significant to Luke's whole mission, which is to show how the good news of Jesus spread, how Jesus continued his work and spread it to the Gentiles. But in one of those other accounts, it's very interesting, as, as Paul is describing what's happening here, he tells us that he was approaching Damascus around noon at the hottest part of the day. And you see also something here of Saul's determination, right? Saul is pushing his company to get to Damascus. They're even traveling at the part of the day when nobody would be traveling because he must put an end to this Jesus movement. He is determined. He is an enemy. He is a continual enemy of Jesus and of the name of Jesus. Saul, in other words, is a great sinner, the foremost of sinners. And this is where, and this is where Paul is a great example to us of God's grace. Hold your hands. Well, don't do that. 
just keep your Bible open. Actually, the next slide, I think I have uh, the, the passage I want you to see, because it's significant, right? We are actually told by Paul that his conversion is an example of God's grace. In 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16, I'll just, I'll kind of read the part right before it. Paul says this, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But then look what he says here. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is an example of God's grace, right? Paul sees himself as a cup that is filled to overflowing with the grace of Christ, something that he did not deserve. Why? So that no sinner could ever say, I am too sinful for God's mercy and grace. He received mercy as an example of the grace and the mercy and the patience and the kindness of God. If you are full of sin, Jesus is a savior for you that saves sinners. Actually, the perfect place to be before Jesus is to be found sinful before Jesus because that is why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save sinners. And Paul is an example, a great example of a sinner that Jesus saves. So that's the first one. He's an example. Uh, Paul's conversion, it's an example of God's grace. Second, it's an example of God's command. It's an example of God's command. God is God. He is the absolute authority over everything and over every one. One of the reasons why I just want to go through Acts with you is I just want you to see how powerful and unstoppable The work of Jesus is. If Jesus is pursuing something, if Jesus is building his church, it is an unstoppable work. Jesus will continue. There's a lot of things to note about Jesus' authority here. Um, First off, I am struck by the location of Saul's call. He is 135 miles outside of Jerusalem. He He is nearing Damascus, which is kind of foreign soil. And this is where Jesus appears to him. And also, I'm struck by the situation of Saul's call as well. Saul isn't like the the Samaritans that we saw in Acts chapter 8, who are desiring to find their Messiah. Saul isn't like the Ethiopian that we saw in Acts 8 either, who is on the outside seeking to understand what these scriptures mean. Saul is someone who is a Pharisee of Pharisees. According to the law, he is considered righteous. He really isn't looking for this kind of person like Jesus. As a matter of fact, he is going in the absolute opposite direction. He is hunting down Christians and trying to destroy them. He is going in the opposite direction, right? 
This is not a conversion of someone who is seeking after Jesus. This is a story of someone that's going against Jesus, and Jesus stops them in the middle of their tracks as they are going against them. Saul appears to be in control, but really Jesus shows that he is in control. And this just shows you something, right? No sinner is safe from Jesus if Jesus is hunting for that sinner. Nobody is outside of his jurisdiction, right? That's the location of his call, the situation of his call, but also just the tone of his call is striking to me in the command of Jesus that it implies, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise, command, enter the city, command. You will be told what you must do. Command, 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 right? This is very interesting, a little bit different maybe than the gospel uh, message that you're familiar with, but do you notice there really aren't any pleas, there aren't any requests, there, there isn't like a sense that Jesus is giving Saul an opportunity to make a decision for Christ. Uh, Jesus is not asking Saul to walk the aisle and dedicate his life to Jesus. Jesus is like, listen, you're going to obey me. You have one choice, to obey the sovereign Lord of the universe or to be destroyed by me. Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to obey? Matter of fact, in Acts 26, Acts 26, when, when Saul's recounting this whole entire scene, he says this after Jesus appears to him. He's talking to King Agrippa, of course, but he says this. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Do you realize that the the message of the gospel ultimately is a command which you have to obey. It's not a, hey, here's some interesting information. Do, with you, do what you like with it. It's, no, listen, here is news from the sovereign king of the universe. And you must choose to obey or walk in disobedience to this message. It says in Acts 17.30, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. It says in John 3, 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice the tone of Jesus' call to Saul. It's a demand, right? The gospel message is ultimately a command. You must Obey and believe this message about Jesus. Now, this brings up something else really quick. Notice also the preparation. Now, real quick, we don't see Jesus kind of walk through the gospel message with Saul. He doesn't say, hey, did you know that there's a creator of the universe? Um, did you know that you are a sinner before him and judged and condemned and unrighteous? Did you know that God sent his son, me, uh, in the fullness of human flesh. And I lived a perfect life, completely fulfilled the law, perfectly, even to my heart, on my heart level, I fulfilled the law so that all of my righteousness could be given to sinners and all sinners' sinfulness could be imputed to me. And then when I die on the cross, God's wrath is poured out on me and not on you. And then my righteousness can be poured on you. 
so that you can stand before God in my righteousness alone. Jesus didn't say any of that. Why? Because Saul already knew the gospel message. Ultimately, Jesus is kind of just coming in at the very end of the message that Saul already knew and says, are you going to obey me? Are you going to believe? How did Saul already know all of this stuff? Well, most likely he knew it very well from arguing with Stephen constantly. You remember back in Acts 6 when all those Hellenists from Cilicia were arguing with Stephen? Well, it's more than likely that Saul was one of those men that tried to trip up Stephen in his words. That meant Saul was constantly arguing with Stephen over the message of the gospel, and he learned this message well. As a matter of fact, he grew up in Judaism. He knew about his sinfulness and God's holiness. His heart was prepared. So it's not just enough to just say, hey, I want to follow Jesus. You have to know truths about the gospel, but ultimately you have to respond to the truth of the gospel with humbleness and obedience. That is what responding and believing the gospel means. You know you rightly understand the gospel when you realize how absolutely helpless you are before God and you either have the choice to obey him or to be destroyed and judged and perish without Jesus. You know that you know the gospel. It's an example of God's command. It's Thirdly, it's an example, uh, Saul's conversion is an example of God's regeneration. Regeneration. Notice this, verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing So they had to lead him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Notice the repetition of the idea that his eyes were unable to see. Very interesting there that his eyes were opened, but he wasn't able to see anything. Now to me, that is a perfect description of Saul's entire life. Right? He was walking around like a dead man. His eyes were opened. He was able to see the world and understand the world. But at the same time, he was spiritually blind. He did not have eyes. He did not have desires to see and to love and to believe and to obey Jesus. When the message of Jesus came around, he instantly resisted it. He instantly was hardened to it. And this is also a metaphor of every single person in the world. We're all spiritually dead. Keep your hand in Acts 9 and flip over to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 tells this to you, about you, before you were saved. It's not a very encouraging picture. Ephesians 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Notice Paul includes himself in that, and you in that, everybody in that, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is everybody. For, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice, you were dead. You were not just kind of sick. You were absolutely spiritually unable to do anything. You you had eyes open, but were not seeing anything. You were a dead person walking. 
And not, not only that, you were following someone. You were following the prince of the power of the air. You were following your father, as First John would say, the devil, and obeying him. That's why, actually, you oppose Jesus. Your heart is dead, and you're following someone that is act- actively trying to lead you away from Jesus. But then in verse 4, see those beautiful words, but God. Those are the two most significant words in your life. But God. I was going this way. I was loving my own way. I was seeking what I thought would, would, would bring me pleasure, bring me joy, bring me happiness. But God. That's the story of Saul too, right? He was breathing out threats against God's church, God's people. But God. Those are the most significant two words of your entire testimony. God. But God. We also see in another cross-reference, you can write this down, but you don't have to turn there. In 2 Corinthians, Paul also says this. He says this. uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice the spiritual condition of the unbeliever. Their minds are covered. Their eyes are blinded to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, but apart from being regenerated, apart from having your eyes opened, apart from God turning on the lights in your heart, you cannot see Jesus for who he is and love him and want to obey him because your eyes are blind. You need someone to turn on the lights. And Saul is a great example of God's regeneration. The same thing that God does in our hearts as well. Let's look at another reason why Paul's conversion story is an example of our own. Uh, Number four, it's an example of God's transformation. It's an example of God's transformation. The presence of Jesus in someone's life always makes an impact, causes a change. Technically, Saul wasn't an outright pagan, was he? He wasn't, you know, going clubbing every single night, shooting it up with heroin every single day, right? He wasn't one of those people. He wasn't bad. Matter of fact, he was really good. Matter of fact, if you were to stack his life up against your life, he would probably look a little bit better than you. He was zealous for the law. Everything that he, he thought he knew about God, he tr- tried to obey. He was very religious, a very religious person. But yet... Yet his life became instantly different. When when you follow Jesus, your life will change. No matter how great of a person you appear on the outside, your life will change because your heart is different. Your whole heart is different towards God and towards other people, and your life will show a magnificent impact of this. He went from persecutor to preacher, from persecutor to persecuted. Look at that, even in this very chapter. He, he, at the beginning of the chapter, he's chasing people, and at the end of the chapter, he's running away from people. He goes from murderer to missionary. 
I, uh, I appreciated John MacArthur's comment on this part. He, he talks about the two ways that Paul was transformed. I want you to listen to these two ways. These are really interesting to me. Uh, first off, the Holy Spirit took Saul's natural strengths and refined them. Right? Saul was bold. Saul was disciplined. Saul had this all-in mentality. Saul was a natural leader. Saul had self-control. Saul had willpower. Saul had an intellect. Saul was a great speaker. Saul had all of these things. And what did the Lord Jesus do with them? He refined them. He refined them so that these natural gifts became extraordinary tools in the hands of Jesus. Because Saul had a humble heart towards Jesus. Notice, you can have incredible natural abilities, but if they are in the hands of evil, they can, they can cause just untold evil. But in the hands of the Holy Spirit, your natural gifts can cause countless good as well. That's the first thing the Spirit does. He takes your natural strengths and he refines them. But he also does something else. MacArthur goes on. The Holy Spirit also eliminated undesirable characteristics and replaced them with desirable ones. I'm just going to quote MacArthur here. He replaced Saul's cruel hatred with love. His restless, aggressive spirit with peace. His rough, hard-nosed treatment of people with gentleness. And essentially, his pride with humility. When the Lord Jesus Christ enters your life, he refines and strengthens many good things in your life, but he also demands repentance and causes change. He demands that you put off some things, and pursue and put on other things in the, in the place of those things. You might seem to be a very good person. You might seem to have a lot of good things going for you. But notice this, apart from Jesus, you are nothing. Jesus even said to one of the, the greatest religious scholars of his day, right? You need to be born again. You need to be totally changed on the inside. On the total inside. He is an example of God's transformation. Every Christian is transformed. It might not seem like an overnight, just sudden difference like we see in Saul, but there will be a difference. You will see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Paul's conversion is also an example of God's community. It's an example of God's community. Uh, Paul would later write to the Corinthian church. He said this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Now, when I read that quote, at least how I used to read that quote was, Consider your calling, brothers. None of you were wise. None of you were cool. None of you were popular. But just notice, he says not many. He says not many, which means perhaps not necessarily nobody. Uh, it doesn't mean not any, but it just says not many. It just means that the church of God is an unexpected community of God's grace. Nobody that is a part of the church of God deserves to be there. It's an unexpected community of God's grace, and it is unified. The church is, isn't 
just for the great, it's or and it's also not just for the stupid, it's for all of the people that God has purchased. And we see this in Saul as well. We see this in Saul as well. Notice, notice this. Saul, of all believers, you would think, could have gone alone, done it on his own. But notice, it is imperative for Saul, even Saul, that he must be joined to the community of God. He must become a member. He must publicly identify with the other believers. He must join the Jerusalem church. He must join the Damascus church because that is what believers are to do. We are all called. We are all unworthy when we're called, but we're all called to be a part of the same body. There is no such thing as a Christian that can kind of go through life on their own. It is incredibly ineffective to try to live the Christian life on your own. You are called to live in a community, and we see this in Paul as well. God orchestrates Paul's um, placement into the church, and I find that encouraging. Uh, Paul, Paul himself will say again in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, just as the one body is one and has many members and all are members of the body, Though many, so it is with Christ. There is no such thing as a Christian that is outside of the body of Christ. Every Christian, including Saul, needs the local church. You could say it this way. There is no organism of your body, no individual member like a finger or an eye, that will do very well on its own. It'll die on its own, right? You need to be a part of the body. Every single believer needs to be a part of the body. And that is also something we see from Saul's conversion, don't we? From the moment he is saved, he is joining himself to the local church publicly. Matter of fact, look at that. He is baptized in verse 18. He is publicly saying, I am with you. Those people that used to be my enemies are now my friends, and those people that used to be my friends are now my enemies. That is a radical transformation in Paul. And finally, one last thing that the example of Saul gives to us and provides for us, it is an example of God's protection. It's an example of God's protection. In a way, as you follow Saul making his way towards the Damascus Christians, it kind of seems like Saul is unstoppable. It kind of seems like Saul is ahead of even the prayers of the saints. They don't even have time to pray for God to protect them from Saul. Now, I'm sure they were doing this, but Luke doesn't tell us that they're doing this. Saul just seems to be on a rampage. But Luke shows us a picture of Christ that is amazing, compelling, wonderful, blessed. If you are a Christian, Jesus takes the initiative in his time in his will, to independently act for the protection of his bride and the furtherance of his message. Jesus works on his own to protect his body in his good timing. Jesus is always in complete control. It doesn't matter where the problem is. Jesus is in complete control, and we see this on this Damascus roll in the, on this Damascus road. Uh, Jesus is also closely connected with his body. Notice the preciousness of this truth. Back in Acts 9, all the way back in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul is flabbergasted. Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting these innocent people? He says, you are, in effect, attacking and persecuting me. The the emphatic pronoun, me, there is intentional, too. It's supposed to be striking. It's, it's, it's supposed to cause you to wake up and say, whoa, wait a minute. And this is what Paul realized, right? This is when Paul realized the extent of his sinfulness. It's not just that I'm a persecutor of the church. It's that I am a persecutor of Jesus Christ himself and his people. This showed Saul the greatness of his sin. And notice when Saul becomes a preacher, a missionary for Christ, notice that exact same providential protection from the Lord Jesus Christ follows him too. Do you see that in chapter 9 at the end, right? Saul is warned by his disciples. Saul makes an escape from Jerusalem and heads off to Caesarea in verse 39. And this is just a simple lesson for you, right? From the moment you become a Christian You become a member of Christ's body. And you become someone to which Christ is intimately associated and cares for and provides for and protects as well. That's what you learn about your state with Jesus. If someone comes against me, it's as if they're coming against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I can trust Christ's grace for whatever I need in that moment of trial. I can count on the care, the provision, and the grace to, to supply every need in Christ. I want you guys to, to quickly just kind of talk to you know someone that's around you about maybe one of these examples that really stands out to you. But let me just give them to you really quick one more time and just emphasize the applications that are here for you. Notice first, God's grace. <laughs> You are never too sinful to be found by this Savior. Notice God's command. You are never outside of his lordship. You are never not called to obedience. You're either walking in disobedience or you're walking to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's regeneration, apart from God's power, To open your eyes, you are blind. You need God to open up the lights of your life to see Jesus. The believer has eyes to see who Jesus is. And the believer has eyes to see who they are. You need to see God's transformation as well. Uh, Believers will change. And the cool thing about being a believer is you desire to change. And in Christ Jesus, you finally have the ability to change. Through the power of the Spirit, you finally have the ability to be transformed. Or how about God's community? When you are made a new creation, you are also made a member of one another. You can't survive without one another. It's an instant instinct of becoming a member of the body. Or how about God's protection Everyone who is a part of the body of Christ has his grace, has his provision, has his protection instantly in their life. That is who you are if you are a Christian. That is the the picture of of your state from the example of the Apostle Paul.
than Saul. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for this morning, and we pray that you would bless us through your word and help us to to deepen our understanding of you and of who we are as your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.